Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Cannon Calls. This week, returning guest, Michael J. Astru, also known as A.M. Juster, a poet, has returned to the podcast. And this week, we talk about American poet, the late and great Richard Wilbur. One book that came to mind as we spoke was Douglas Wilson's book, Writers to Read, Nine Names That Belong on Your Bookshelf. If books are among our friends, we ought to choose them wisely. But sometimes it's hard to know where to start. In this book, Douglas Wilson, someone who spent a lifetime writing, reading, and teaching, introduces us to nine of his favorite authors from the last 150 years. You can get this book today at canonpress.com. Now, without further ado, meet A.M. Juster. All right, now welcoming on recurring guest, a very special guest, A.M. Juster. Thank you so much for giving your time again to us. No, happy to be back. Uh, now, I last time you were on, you were promoting your book, Wonder and Wrath, and I believe I yeah. just saw that it entered its uh, second print run. Uh, that- yeah, it, um, I, we're outselling Megan McCain, apparently, so that's, that's good news. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Uh, but today is a little different. Today, uh, I have I have basically been lying in wait for for a perfect either motivation or opportunity to to do an episode on the podcast in honor of Richard Wilbur, who is uh, uh, the late and great Richard Wilbur, who died a few years ago, a poet, two time poet laureate, if I if I remember correctly. Um, I just finished a biography of his. And as I finished, I went to sort of scour the internet and see how the poets, the how people received it and reviewed it. And I came across your review on First Things. And uh, in short, uh, let me see. In short, you were not impressed. You begin by That's saying correct. Richard Wilbur lived a full life. He did not receive the Nobel Prize or the biography that he deserved. Um, now, so before we get into that though, if folks are just catching up to who you, to who you are there, this is their first introduction to you. Do you mind just giving us a, a, a quick introduction to you? Sure. So, um, I'm, I'm a formal poet. I do a lot of translation. Um, my most recent book, which was my 10th book, uh, was Wonder and Wrath from Paul Dry Books, which is original poetry and a few translations. And uh, next year, my uh, my magnum opus is coming out. So I'm um, I've signed up with W.W. Norton to do uh, a formal translation of Petrarch's Cantinari. Uh And there has never been one in English that, as best my knowledge, that closely matches the meter, the rhyme, and the line length. Um, and um, I should be sending it to uh, W.W. Norton in the next two weeks. I've been working on it. Pretty much nonstop for two and a half, uh, two and a half years. Wow! Um, I'm also poetry editor for Plow, and um, yeah, that kind of thing. Awesome, awesome. Uh, now, one. So, I wanted to talk about Richard Wilbur. I think your uh, review of this biography was a perfect opportunity. Um, do you mind just briefly telling us who Richard Wilbur was? Sure. So, I think Richard Wilbur was, uh, without much doubt the finest American formal poet after Robert Frost. Um, you know, I've, 
I have friends that debate Frost versus Wilbur, but I don't think there's anybody after Frost that that is in his league. And Wilbur wrote um, exquisite original verse. He had a, a a wonderful knack for observing the mundane and finding something wondrous in it, and something make you think about something in a way that you've never thought about it before. Um, he also um, was a superb translator, and I think the best um, into English um, ever, um, based on all the Moliere translations, which are just um, splendid. Um, you know, French is one of the languages I can access directly, so I can line up the French against the English. Okay, okay. And um, I've actually had friends that have criticized the Wilbur um, translations by saying they're better than the Moliere, which I think is, which I think is getting a little carried away, but, but, but still, um, so he's a superb translator, uh, and a very nice man. I had the privilege of getting to know him just a little bit toward the end of his life. Um, and he did die, um, just about half a mile from me in my That's hometown. Right. That's right. Um, and, um, uh, he had a long life. He had a long, wonderful marriage. um, he was an, you know, unfailingly courteous man, um, and I think the people that knew him miss him a lot. Absolutely. Uh, now, this uh, this episode or, and your review, there's all kinds of things that I think are are very fascinating about not only just the written biographies, um, you know, but the art of biography. I guess you could say so. All those kind of things I want to get to. But first, if you don't mind, sort of placing Wilbur for us, I sent you this quote from your review, um, where you say, although friendly with most of his poetic contemporaries, Wilbur resisted this the trendy temptations of his time. Uh, you, you name several poets, and then you say, like Elizabeth Bishop, he refused to put his life on display in the manner of Robert Lowell. Plath, Sexton, Berryman, and the confessional poets who are his peers. His work often okay. displays joy and optimism, qualities in short supply among contemporary poets. Do you mind sort of placing him in his time? And then sort of how did he function in relation to his peers? Well, I, you know, when I think of Wilbur, um, I don't think of him as much in relation to his peers as his predecessors, and I think of him interesting a lot like the um, the metaphysical poets. Okay, um, and I think of Dunn and Herbert and and poets like that who who also had this richness in language, um, and this this way of taking you from your everyday world and making you think hard about spirituality and your own motives and, and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I think that it's a very different approach from particularly recent American and, and British poetry, which is, um, I think very focused on the self, very focused on the sort of the day-to-day reporting of the self <laughs> often as a validation for politics and that kind of thing. And, sure. and you know, I, um, uh, I'm not a huge fan of Frank O'Hara, but you know I I think there's some fascinating things there, and certainly he was part of a historical uh, moment that was really interesting. Um, but he created what people have called the "I did this, I did that" poems, and he was very good at it. And and he 
took it to another level. We've got an awful lot of bad imitations of Frank O'Hara out there, and and that's not the kind of thing that that um, that Wilbur did. I mean, I, I think one of my favorite poems, which I've talked about on a couple other occasions of Wilbur's, is um, "Love Calls Us to the Thing Things of This World," and that's simply living in a, an apartment building in New York City, you know, in the 40s or 50s. I don't remember the exact date. It's an old. It's one of his earliest poems. And in those days, you'd look out a window and there would be, you know, um, laundry drying on lines. And, and just simply that image of laundry um, on lines takes him to just remarkable spaces. And it's just it's a lovely, striking poem. Um, and I think one of the best of the 20th century. And again, it's, there's nothing um, spectacular, nothing terribly personal sure about it it's but it's it's built on you know um observation do you think too though because there's you're uh i once heard the confessional poets and and even sort of the novelists that get into this of like they it was described to me as sort of uh they're just like flashing themselves to random bystanders or you know just look at me look at you know (laughs) it's a very strange (laughs) concept um but that is is widely received but you mentioned you know the love calls us to the things of this world it's not personal in primary motivation but you do find out so much about who he is you know you still you do achieve that personality but through other means yes you know you get a sense of the man's dignity you get the sense of the man's spirituality um, so it's not surprising when you actually meet him. I mean, if he had turned out to be kind of, you know, an obnoxious jerk pushing people aside for the cheese at a literary conference or something, <laughs> then you'd, then you'd be surprised. And, you know, occasionally you do get surprised when you meet poets in person, although not, not often. I mean, you know, if you're actually familiar with a poet's work, usually when you meet them, it's not, not terribly surprising. And, and, and Wilbur, um, comes across as a very level, gracious, in multiple senses of the word gracious, um, person. And so when I did actually get to know him just a little bit, um, there were no surprises. I mean, the, the man was pretty close to the image that I had of him from his work. I imagine a lot of people, so I, I spent a lot of time on this podcast exhorting to, to what level of success I'm, I'm unsure, but, uh, you know, an interest in poetry. Um, I imagine a lot of my listeners or, or even, uh, good friends of mine, when they think of poetry, they have in mind sort of, or they have this taste in their mouth of that sort of confessional world, or they, you know, immediately think of someone, uh, maybe Sylvia Plath, that's what they read in their high school class or, or something to that effect. Um, can you tell? You mentioned that he veered away from their temptations. Do you, can you talk a little bit about that line? What what is what was the temptations of that world? Yeah, and, and I'm not I'm not knocking all of confessionalism because I think you can. I mean, I mean, I'm translating Petrarch now. In a lot of ways, he was the first confessional poet. At least that's the way you know I look yeah. at him. And for me, when I was first writing and first getting serious about poetry you know, as a preteen, scary as that is. Um, you know, Sylvia Plath was huge for me. And I think um, how directly she's influenced what I write has gone up and down over the years. Um, but I still have enormous um, admiration for Plath. Um, more for the early Sexton and Sexton than the later yep. Sexton. Um, there was a point 
in my college years where I kind of sold myself a little bit on Berryman. And then later I was persuaded that, you know, I had made a mistake in that regard. Um, was, was you know, and Lowell, yeah, Lowell. And Lowell is very hit and miss. I mean, um, Lowell has some of the most wondrous, um, Amer- you know, poems um, in American literature, um, and he's got some terrible ones too. Um, and so, um, and I think you have to have sympathy for the man because he was sure. going through a lot of um, neurological swings, really. I mean, sure. really chemical swings, and then um, the um, the, inf- the attempts to influence it with the very crude medications that they had at the time. Um, you know, maybe helped him a little bit, but probably didn't help the poetry most of the time when he was taking those medications. So, you know, Lowell is very, very complicated that way. But, you know, so I, there's, I'm not down on the great confessionalists, the most acclaimed confessionalists for the most part, Berryman, yes, but but not <laughs> not the others completely. Um, but I do think that, you know, one of the problems when you have, you know, a successful school of poets is they often breed so many imitators and imitators that don't really understand what made the originals great. And so we, we do read a lot of poetry today that's, you know, in some sense, imitative of the con- sure. great confessionalists. And it's just, you know, it's just not very good most of the time. Do you find, so, um, I imagine there would be, uh, there's a certain kind of formalist then who would rage have a particular rage or, or, or just rage against that sort of, that line of, of poetry perhaps. Um, and yeah. they would choose Frost and Wilbur and them and others as their heroes. Um, one thing I note, and I w- would love to hear you talk about, especially as I think about, uh, Wilbur wrote a poem about his, uh, meeting he had with Plath. Um, Wilbur didn't do that to that group. Um, he seemed no, to have a, right. a lot of affection for them. Um, and I always just get away with, I think at Cottage Street in 1953 is Wilbur's poem where he yep. sits with Plath. And I find in this- In Massachusetts. Yes. And I find this- Not far from here. Okay. Okay. So I, I just find that he has this sort of grandfatherly affection and uh, humbleness about them. Although you can yeah. tell he he is he sees them honestly. You know, he's not- rose-colored glasses. Can you, can you speak to that or just about his personality? Yeah, I think there was a generosity of spirit about Wilbur where um, I think he took his Christianity very seriously and um, I think genuinely believed that, you know, people could have other artistic visions and pursue that and that would be fine and good and, and a very worthwhile for way for them to spend their lives. And I think that he was fine. I don't think he was threatened by Ginsburg or, um, you know, um, Pound or, you know, any of the, any of the other popular poets, you know, of his time. I think that's pretty rare in poetry. Um, you know, this is one of the things that happens when, you know, letters come out and that kind of thing. And I don't know, someday I suppose it will be when emails come out or something like that. Texts, yeah. But, <laughs> but you know, you, you read, for instance, the, the Bishop Lowell co- correspondence and, and, you know, you read about kind of how they s- spoke to each other. And, and, and it's, it's pretty unappealing. It's pretty nasty and it's pretty competitive. Um, and in fact, that's the way a lot of poets today 
you know, talk about each other. You know, you go to AWP, you hear a lot of that kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and that just wasn't, um, Wilbur's style. I mean, he was a gentleman. Um, you know, Timothy Steele would be another poet who was in that category, but they're relatively rare, you know, to be honest. Um, and, um, uh, you know, they seem to be above the competitiveness of the literary world. And, and, you know, we, we'd be better off if we had more people like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, uh, so I, I mentioned I had been on a spree of biographies, but one that I had just finished about pound, I noticed, uh, I think I believe it was Elizabeth Bishop that had a great relationship with Pound and and Lowell as well, and there seems there does seem to be you mentioned sympathy for the man, uh, in reference to Lowell. There does seem to be this sort of, um, and and this may make the difference between the imitators and that particular school, but just a sort of unwellness or um, certainly hurt, uh, and not doing really well. Um, that Wilbur didn't totally evade. It's funny. I picked up a a book on Wilbur recently, which whose like sole purpose was to prove he wasn't just sort of happy clappy and he was actually sad. And it was just a very funny, it's a very funny thesis because that's kind of what you're left with, with Wilbur's. No, I do want to give him the credit. He, he, you know, he also had hard things happen to him. Um, well, he had a son with autism. Um, you know, he, he saw some difficult things in world war two. Yeah, you know, um, he didn't have a totally protected, entitled life. Right, right. What do you think? Uh, his differentiation, maybe from from his peers, is just a, a a thing of his personality. Or you mentioned he took his Christianity very seriously. Um, how did you see that breaking down? Well, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, you know, you kind of look. Well, who are the peers that he? who we should be compared with. Sure. Um, the one that you hear most often is Hecht. Um, okay. And, and I think that um, they're very different people. I mean, I, I may have a bias here, so just to disclose <laughs> that, that I, didn't, I did not get along with Hecht. Um, I found him to be a very difficult man. And I think that he was a very talented poet. I think that he was much darker. Um, I don't think that his faith supported him the way that um, mm. Wilbur's did. Um, and I think he saw um, more horrible things in World War II that haunted him than the things that, that Wilbur saw. So, and I think that, that, I think that stayed with him his sure. whole life, and particularly you know, into the 40s and 50s, where it was a huge overhang, I think, on, on Heck's psyche. But they're very different men. And I don't think that Hecht has had the influence that as, as fine as Wilbur is and, 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 and people, I think, generally rate Hecht just a heartbeat behind Wilbur as a poet. I don't think he ha- has had the same influence either as a person, as a poet, as Wilbur has. Wilbur had some very devoted uh, acolytes um, who, you know, did get to know the man and were su- supported by the man. And I think he had a lot more poets who kind of tried to model their work um, after Wilbur. And that's true for me. I mean, I, you know, um, particularly now, I mean, I've I've pushed away pretty much everything else I've been doing for two and a half years to translate Petrarch. 
and and I often sit here and, and think, well, what would Richard Wilbur do? <laughs> um, you know, occasionally I think, what would James Merrill do? Particularly yeah. when I'm on the um, the Canzones, the longer, more tangled poems. Um, somehow those those seem to be a little bit more Merrill-like to me than Wilbur-like. But you know, I I, I think about his approaches and his tools and, and all that kind of on a very regular basis in a way that I don't think about Hecht. I think about Merrill. Um, you know, there occasionally, there are other poets that, you know, you try to borrow sure. from and that kind of Kay Ryan sometimes. Um, but I don't think Hecht's had the same influence that, um, that Wilbur has had. Now, uh, one aspect that I found very fascinating in your review was you said this. There is a recent tradition of biographers of poets gratuitously turning on their cooperating subjects. Yes. This was very good, and it landed on me, as I told you, because I just finished sort of a a biography of Frost that was written in response to Lawrence Thompson's, which you mentioned here. Um, Before we move forward, is that how that relates to Wilbur? Could you... Tell us about the Lawrence Thompson biography of Frost. Sure. So the Lawrence Thompson um, story is, is very is parallel to the Philip Larkin story, um, where um, a young writer kind of got taken into the confidence of the poet and became the official biographer. Um, with the poet, I'm sure, thinking that there would be at least a, a fair, if not a flattering, <laughs> to extent that those are different, sure. um, portrayal of the poet. Um, and in both cases, you got these absolutely scathing um, biographies that for long periods of time significantly damaged the political reputation of the poets. Um, I think Frost is pretty much recovered at this point. Larkin is almost recovered, I guess, <laughs> at this point. Um, although I suspect if, if um, Monica Jones and his secretary hadn't burned his diary, that he'd probably you know, be repairing <laughs> that reputation. But um, uh, yeah, but there's been sort of this tradition to. Um, I guess what bothers me is, is in my view, which is. Um, you know, some people might consider simplistic, but I think biography is a form of history. Yeah. And I think if you're writing history, you have an obligation to others to try to call it as straight as you possibly can, to try to describe things the way they were. And it is not just there to to support your worldview of the person or your worldview more broadly. And my concern about a lot of recent biographies of poets is that they just don't have that kind of professionalism. Um, and I think they present a lot of false pictures of the poets, whether they're negative or they're positive. Yep. Um, and um, so I I was on a string there where I was writing a lot of negative reviews of poet biographies. So I do want to note that there are many fine ones out there. <laughs> I, don't get asked, I don't get asked to, to review them as often, and I'm taking a break from it. But, you know, Nicholas McDowell, did a, an absolutely splendid review, a book of biography of the young Milton. Um, and I haven't read all of it, but I've read parts because it's very long too, but the new Heather Clark 
biography of Sylvia Plath is superb. Nice. Um, and so, the, you know, there are some good ones um, out there, but I do think that um, I, I think the literary establishment today is is into blending genres. So, you know, I, I negatively reviewed the, the Kay Jameson book on Lowell, and, and to be fair to her, she sort of disowns it as a biography, even though that's, you know, what it ultimately it was and the way people treated it and described it as a psychological account of the life and mind of Robert Lowell. And that I think is a tip off that you're, you're, you're kind of getting into a lot more Kay Jameson than, yeah, um, right. you know, and, and I think I've had that problem with one of the Bishop biographies and the, the Chaucer biography, it was a recent Chaucer biography and that kind of thing. Um, and so um, I think that, the literary world would be better served if there were more discussion about the craft of biography. And there were courses, yeah. where people, you know, conferences that people went to about, you know, biography. And I, and I know some biographers, you know, who take the craft very seriously and that's really how they spend their lives like Carl Rollison. Um, but I think a lot of people get into this thinking that it's, less complicated than it is. And it's not a craft. And so I think that's part of the reason why I'm being asked to review a lot of, of, you know, disappointing biographies. Now I'm curious because it seemed to me from the, from this sort of uh, response biography of Frost that Lawrence, it was almost a a personality deficit on Thompson's part where there would be something like uh, Frost in this very Frostian muttering about how you know he you know I'll, he 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 said something to the effect of like i i i'm going to kill ezra uh or yeah. something like that and and thompson would put in his in the biography like frost often had murderous thoughts concerning ezra pound and you're just like well that's not really how people talk <laughs> or or you know um so it seemed to be that do you see for example to bring it to this episode do you see the do you see that being a similar thing to the Bags biography of Wilbur or do you find it to be more intentional than that that they knew they they're they're a bit more in control of what they're doing contra the Thompson situation? I, I think it varies. You know, you know, Bag um Robert Bag was it was actually co-authored with his wife, but um you know, he <laughs> he he posted what appeared to be a drunken tirade about my review on Christmas Eve on some university website or something like that. <laughs> and, and so, so he took it, you know, very personal. I, I actually don't think bag set out so much with an agenda, but I think that he was, you know, a pretty obscure academic, um, who was very much, uh, not into the Wilbur worldview you know, yes. was really, you know, uh, coming from a dairy. And so I don't think, A, he understood some key things mm. about Wilbur and his technique, which is one of the things I, I mentioned in yep. the review. But I also don't think he respected them. And I think that, I think part of him really did resent Wilbur's fame and that kind of thing. And, and you know, because Bag himself didn't get it. They were, you know, I think Bag is a little bit younger than Wilbur, but not a lot younger. Um, you know, he was towards the end of his career. And I think it, you know, I think professional jealousy came out is my theory about it. Um, and I don't know that it was conscious, 
Sure, you know? sure. But but I think there was, you know, poets get pretty competitive. Again, to go back to you know Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell and AWP conferences, and I think that the bag ultimately kept comparing himself to Wilbur and saying, well, why is he so famous? And I think he, there was this feeling that he needed to take the man down. Um, and I thought the ways in which he did it were pretty shabby. Do you, but do I think you, that came across in the review. Do you think that uh, there will be more biographies of Wilbur? Are you privy to any? I hope so. I don't know of any. Um, you know, and Wilbur is one of those kind of um, authors where, you know, they're the attention that the Academy pays to them, you know, goes up and down. And right now, um, I think he's in a little bit of a down cycle, but he's so good and so interesting that I think that will change again. And there are poets who are, um, I'm interested in yeah, who I'd started to think that the world was going to forget who, you know, are having biographies done there. There's, um, Carolyn Kaiser, who um, is a very interesting poet, um, not in the top group from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but, you know, top second tier back when I think there are a lot of great poets writing, more great poets writing than there are today. Um, and Carolyn Kaiser had sort of been forgotten, even though she had a very interesting life in addition to being an interesting poet. Um, but I know that there's a biography of... Um, of Kaiser coming out soon. So I'm sure that there will be um, more biographies of Wilbur. I would hope sooner rather than later. Yeah. And, you know, to, to give Bag some credit too, um, you know, he did talk Richard into sort of opening up the tent in a way that he hadn't done before. So there was, a, there was a lot of factual information that came out for the first time in that biography that was useful and will be useful to, the next future biographers. Yeah. Uh, so apart from a biography, in your opinion, just as, as someone who enjoys Wilbur's work, what is the book to be written about Wilbur that you would be fascinated most? Oh boy. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there haven't been as many books written about Wilbur as you would, you would think. I mean, you look at, certain other poets um who i in my view have less stature um wilbert's been pretty thin in terms of the secondary work but i um i think the the, the spiritual element spiritual slash religious you know i go back and forth i'm trying to figure out um exactly how religious Richard was. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and I, and oftentimes with people, the answer is, you know, they vary too. Um, you know, most people, uh, a lot of people, you know, struggle with their faith and go back and forth. And so how religious versus spiritual he was, how that changed over time. I think there's a great book to be written on that. Um, and as far as I know, no, no one's writing it. So if you're listening, you're free to steal that <laughs> idea. I don't, I don't have the, the time, energy, and skill set to write that book. So you're, you're free to take that idea and run with it. Last thing, uh, just in terms of, we mentioned Robert Frost a few times and, and in relation to Wilbur, one thing that I appreciate about them most is this sort of 
um, jovial Americana. I mean, I think Robert Frost had it uh, essentially in the heart and in, in, in the face of just very hard things. Um, they were largely very jovial and very optimistic, uh, to varying degrees. Um, what is, do you see something similar in them or, or is this an accident of their personalities or anything? Uh, do you see the same thing? Yeah, I do. I, I think that in a lot of ways, both men were, um, quintessentially sort of upper middle class Americans from their time period. And, and there was a lot that was admirable um, about the people of that era. Um, they were very patriotic. Yeah, they tended they tended to be generous. Um, you know, they tended to want to be fair. Um, you know, there were always you know that was a long time ago now, and there were parts of our culture that they absorbed probably that you know we wouldn't be comfortable today. Sure. Um, but, um, you know, I'm not aware of a lot of writing or quotation from, certainly from Richard. Um, you know, I, I haven't looked at Frost, you know, as extensively. I did, I did a piece on Frost, oh, geez, almost 20 years ago, um, uh, 15 years ago, um, where I looked at certain aspects of his work with some intensity, but I didn't really go through sure. the, um, you know, the personal life so much. Um, but you know, they, they were pretty admirable people and, and, um, uh, and pretty typical in, in lots of ways. Again, sort of an upper middle class point of view. I mean, you know, Frost spent a lot of time cultivating an image as a little bit more, you know, having grown up, you know, in New Hampshire and Vermont and right. farming and that kind of thing. And that, you know, Look, the guy went to Harvard. He taught at prep schools. You know, that was kind of, you know, he kind of reinvented himself a little bit later yeah. in life. And that's okay. You know, people do that. I did that. I've reinvented myself many times. And it doesn't mean that it's phony or wrong or anything like that. But, you know, you just, you need to be looking fairly at the person. I don't think Richard went through the same sort of interesting evolutions. I mean, I think that, you know, he grew up, um, you know, kind of in a, um, a subsidiary uh, house on the edge of a big estate, and and if I remember correctly, his parents did some work for the estate and that kind of thing. So you know, he had some access to privilege, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Rockefeller either. Sure. Um, and I think Frost was kind of in the same same boat, boat that yeah. way. Um, so you know, they're I think in terms of outlook toward the world and how they thought about relation to community, to the country as a whole, how they should be dealing with other people. And I kind of think they're pretty similar in lots of regards. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Thank you so much for your time. I do want, uh, I would love to get some recommends before that. Make sure you go get uh, Mr. Jester's Wonder and Wrath. I assume you can get that everywhere. Is there anywhere in particular that you would like for folks to get that book from? Well, I always propose, you know, if you can buy it directly from Paul Dry Books, A, you'll get the best price, and B, a much higher uh, percentage of the um, the purchase price will go to the press, which has been Love it. great for me. And they've actually been doing a lot of support for new formalist poets lately. And they've, you know, uh, 
Dana Joya is published with them. Yeah. Uh, Ballings, um, Deborah Warren, I'm leaving out others. I know, uh, Mark Jarman. Um, and so, um, it's a great press. And so if you would buy it directly from Paul dry books, then that would be my recommendation. And awesome. if for some reason you don't want to do that, go to your local independent bookstore and, and buy it through them. Um, did you do an audio book for that? I did not. Have you, know, you ever done audio? It. I haven't done an audio book and, and I'm, uh, I'm a little bit of a slow adopter on new technologies. Sure. Um, myself, I'm, you know, when I was in government and business, I was big on adopting them in the corporations and figuring out how to use them, but never particularly liked using them. Myself. So I suppose <laughs> I'm a little bit of a hypocrite. So yeah, so I've been thinking about doing an audio book. Um, and I've been thinking about doing an audio book for Petrarch, which, awesome. you know, Norton will have something to say about. Um, and actually I've thought maybe for the, Petrarch book that there'll be, you know, interesting guest celebrities Absolutely. that might be interested in, in, in doing that as well. Um, do you, you think about how pa- Patrick Stewart, you know, made a big hit with the Shakespeare sonnet. Absolutely. So be somebody, somebody like that might be interested in doing that with Petrarch. So you're turning that manuscript in pretty quickly here. Do you know the timeline after that? Yeah, it should be out in, in about a year from now. So, Great. um, it's, Substantially through editing, I hired basically my own editors to work through the process. So, I, so it would need to be copy edited and set um, and that kind of thing. But it, it's not going to have to go through uh, the usual external review like yeah. with the university press. Yeah. So um, it should move along reasonably quickly. Um, and at some point next by the middle of next year, it should be out. And if I'm lucky... Um, it would be earlier. Um, I fantasize a little bit um, about having it out for Valentine's Day, um, <laughs> but um, but I'm, I think that might be a little bit aggressive. But yeah, I think probably by next spring is probably a pretty good bet. Awesome, awesome. Now, if there's anybody listening, are there are there biographies you'd want to recommend of poets? Well, I I as I said, I love the Nicholas McDowell. Um, Milton biography of uh, the young Milton and um, uh, the new Heather Clark biography of Plath. Okay, um, I like, and I I like the, and I know it's controversial in certain ways, but I I do like the Diane Middlebrook um, biography of Anne Sexton as well. So in terms of you know, yeah, those those three would be the first three I think come to mind. There are others that are out there. Um, and there are numbers that are actually quite good, and then they've got a few flaws, and well, you know, that kind of goes sure. through the territory. But those, those, those three, I think, would all be well worth a reader's time. Now, are you still teaching out of Robert Frost's kitchen, if I remember correctly? Are you still doing um, that? I haven't recently, so I've had some medical issues that have made okay. that a little difficult for me. So they invited me up this year, and I've taken a pass. I am starting to feel a lot better. And I'm Sorry to hear that. Next. Yeah. Yeah, that maybe next year I'll be able to do it again. Although the the other thing I am doing, I haven't taught in a uh, college or university setting for uh let me do the math quickly, 17 years. Wow. Um but I'm starting up again in August. Um I'm hoping it won't be a disaster because I'm doing it all online. So I'm going to have to oh, nice. figure out how to use all the technology to uh in a seamless way which <laughs> it's going to be a challenge. For what me. can uh, I ask? What the course is? 
Yeah, so I'm teaching the same course I used to teach in Emerson College. So it's it's a workshop on form and poetry. So it's it's a mix of um, uh, discussion about form, and then it's discussion about the poems that the um, the students have written in those forms. Um, and I'll have one of the advantages of the online format is it's be much easier for me to get quality guest lecturers in, which I'm um, um, excited about. So I've just started that process. And, and so, you know, my top first round draft choice, uh, Timothy Steele, is going to come for presumably the, the first uh, class. And, um, you know, his book, um, All the uh, Funds in the Way You Say a Thing, that's right. Um, is, That's right. You know, is the is the only required reading for the course? You know, the book. I mean, they'll have to read individual poems, and short articles, and things like that. But it's the only re- required book for the course. So it's um, uh, it's going to be fun to have the great man himself there. You know, um, interacting with the students. Yeah. So this is at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, by the way. This is the the new MFA program that um, James Matthew Wilson has founded. Awesome. Um, so, uh, so it's in its, I think it's second year, and I've uh, and I, I start teaching in the end of August. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mr. Jester, for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Nope. Happy to do it. Thanks awesome. for inviting me back. Cheers. <laughs>